Book Two, Chapter One, Part Three of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cedarquist looked after him with contemplative interest, then, turning to Magnus, excused himself for the acridity of his words. He's no worse than many others, and the people of this state and city are, after all, a little more addle-headed than other Americans. It was his favorite topic. Sure of the interest of his hearers, he unburdened himself. If I were to name the one crying evil of American life, Mr. Derrick, he continued, it would be the indifference of the better people to public affairs. It is so in all our great centers. There are other great trusts, God knows, in the United States besides our own dear P&S.W. Railroad. Every state has its own grievance. If it is not a railroad trust, it is a sugar trust, or an oil trust, or an industrial trust that exploits the people, because the people allow it. The indifference of the people is the opportunity of the despot. It is as true as that the whole is greater than the part, and the maxim is so old that it is trite, it is laughable. It is neglected and disused for the sake of some new ingenious and complicated theory, some wonderful scheme of reorganization, but the fact remains nevertheless simple, fundamental, everlasting. The people have but to say no, and not the strongest tyranny, political, religious, or financial, that was ever organized could survive one week. The others, absorbed, attentive, approved, nodding their heads in silence as the manufacturer finished. "'There's one reason, Mr. Derrick,' the other resumed after a moment, "'why I have been so glad to meet you. You and your league are trying to say no to the trust. I hope you will succeed. If your example will rally the people to your cause, you will. Otherwise,' he shook his head, "'one stage of the fight is to be passed this very day.' observed Magnus. My sons and myself are expecting hourly news from the City Hall. A decision in our case is pending. We are both of us fighters, it seems, Mr. Derrick, said Cedarquist, each with his particular enemy. We are well met, indeed, the farmer and the manufacturer, both in the same grist between the two millstones of the lethargy of the public and the aggression of the trust two great evils of modern America. Prez, my boy, there is your epic poem ready to hand. But Cedarquist was full of another idea. Rarely did so favorable an opportunity present itself for explaining his theories, his ambitions. Addressing himself to Magnus, he continued, Fortunately for myself, the Atlas Company was not my only investment. I have other interests, the building of ships, steel sailing ships, has been an ambition of mine, for this purpose, Mr. Derrick, to carry American wheat. For years I have studied this question of American wheat, and at last I have arrived at a theory. Let me explain. At present all our California wheat goes to Liverpool, and from that port is distributed over the world. But a change is coming, I am sure of it. You young men, he turned to Presley, Lyman, and Harron, will live to see it. Our century is about done. 
the great word of this nineteenth century has been production the great word of the twentieth century will be listen to me you youngsters market as a market for our production or let me take a concrete example as a market for our wheat europe is played out population in europe is not increasing fast enough to keep up with the rapidity of our production in some cases as in france the population is stationary we however have gone on producing wheat at a tremendous rate the result is overproduction we supply more than europe can eat and down go the prices the remedy is not in the curtailing of our wheat areas but in this we must have new markets greater markets for years we have been sending our wheat from east to west from california to europe but the time will come when we must send it from west to east we must march with the course of empire not against it i mean we must look to china rice in china is losing its nutritive quality the asiatics though must be fed if not on rice then on wheat why mr derrick if only one half the population of china ate a half ounce of flour per man per day all the wheat areas in california could not feed them ah if i could only hammer that into the brains of every rancher of the san joaquin yes and of every owner of every bonanza farm in dakota and minnesota send your wheat to china handle it yourselves do away with the middleman break up the chicago wheat pits and elevator rings and mixing houses when in feeding china you have decreased the european shipments the effect is instantaneous prices go up in europe without having the least effect upon the prices in china we hold the key we have the wheat infinitely more than we ourselves can eat asia and europe must look to america to be fed what fatuous neglect of opportunity to continue to deluge europe with our surplus food when the east trembles upon the verge of starvation two men cedarquist and magnus continued the conversation a little further the manufacturer's idea was new to the governor he was greatly interested he withdrew from the conversation thoughtful he leaned back in his place stroking the bridge of his beak-like nose with a crooked forefinger cedarquist turned to harran and began asking details as to the conditions of the wheat growers of the san joaquin Lyman still maintained an attitude of polite aloofness, yawning occasionally behind three fingers, and Presley was left to the company of his own thoughts. There had been a day when the affairs and grievances of the farmers of his acquaintance, Magnus, Annixter, Osterman, and old Broderson, had filled him only with disgust. His mind, full of a great, vague, epic poem of the West, he had kept himself apart, disdainful of what he chose to consider their petty squabbles. But the scene in Annixter's harness-room had thrilled and uplifted him. He was palpitating with excitement all through the succeeding months. He abandoned the idea of an epic poem. In six months he had not written a single verse. Day after day he trembled with excitement as the relations between the trust and league became more and more strained. He saw the matter in its true light. It was typical. 
it was the world-old war between freedom and tyranny and at times his hatred of the railroad shook him like a crisp and withered reed while the languid indifference of the people of the state to the quarrel filled him with a blind exasperation but as he had once explained to vanamee he must find expression he felt that he would suffocate otherwise he had begun to keep a journal as the inclination spurred him he wrote down his thoughts and ideas in this sometimes every day sometimes only three or four times a month also he flung aside his books of poems milton tennyson browning even homer and addressed himself to mill malthus young pushkin henry george schopenhauer he attacked the subject of social inequality with unbounded enthusiasm he devoured rather than read and emerged from the affair his mind a confused jumble of conflicting notions sick with over-effort raging against injustice and oppression and with not one sane suggestion as to remedy or redress the butt of his cigarette scorched his fingers and roused him from his brooding in the act of lighting another he glanced across the room and was surprised to see two very prettily dressed young women in the company of an older gentleman in a long frock coat standing before hartrath's painting examining it their heads upon one side presley uttered a murmur of surprise he himself was a member of the club and the presence of women within its doors except on special occasions was not tolerated he turned to lyman derrick for an explanation but this other had also seen the women and abruptly exclaimed i declare i had forgotten about it <laughs> why this is ladies day of course why yes interposed cedarquist glancing at the women over his shoulder didn't you know they let em in twice a year you remember and this is a double occasion they are going to raffle hartrath's picture for the benefit of the gingerbread fair why you are not up to date lyman this is a sacred and religious rite an important public event yes 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 of course murmured lyman he found means to survey harran and magnus certainly neither his father nor his brother were dressed for the function that impended he had been stupid magnus invariably attracted attention and now with his trousers strapped under his boots his wrinkled frock coat Lyman twisted his cuffs into sight with an impatient, nervous movement of his wrists, glancing a second time at his brother's pink face, forward-curling yellow hair, and clothes of a country cut. But there was no help for it. He wondered what were the club regulations in the matter of bringing in visitors on Ladies' Day. "'Sure enough. Ladies' Day,' he remarked. I am very glad you struck it, Governor. We can sit right where we are. I guess this is as good a place as any to see the crowd. It's a good chance to see all the big guns of the city. You expect your people here, Mr. Cedarquist? My wife may come, and my daughters, said the manufacturer. Ah, murmured Presley. So much the better. I was going to give myself the pleasure of calling upon your daughters, Mr. Cedarquist, this afternoon. Uh, you can save your car fare, Press, said Cedarquist. You will see them here. No doubt the invitations for the occasion had appointed one o'clock as the time, for between that hour and two the guests arrived in an almost unbroken stream. From their point of vantage in the round window of the main room, Magnus, his two sons, and Presley looked on very interested. 
Cedarquist had excused himself, affirming that he must look out for his women-folk. Of every ten of the arrivals, seven, at least, were ladies. They entered the room, this unfamiliar masculine haunt, where their husbands, brothers, and sons spent so much of their time, with a certain show of hesitancy and little nervous oblique glances moving their heads from side to side like a file of hens venturing into a strange barn. They came in groups, ushered by a single member of the club, doing the honors with effusive bows and polite gestures, indicating the various objects of interest, pictures, busts, and the like that decorated the room. Fresh from his recollections of Bonneville, Guadalajara, and the dance at Annixter's barn, Presley was astonished at the beauty of these women and the elegance of their toilettes. The crowd thickened rapidly. A murmur of conversation arose, subdued, gracious, mingled with the soft rustle of silk, grenadines, velvet. The scent of delicate perfumes spread in the air. Violet de Parma, Peau d'Espagne, colors of the most harmonious blends appeared and disappeared at intervals in the slowly moving press, touches of lavender-tinted velvets, pale violet crepes, and cream-colored appliqued laces. There seemed to be no need of introductions. Everybody appeared to be acquainted. There was no awkwardness, no constraint. The assembly disengaged an impression of refined pleasure. On every hand, innumerable dialogues seemed to go forward easily and naturally, without break or interruption, witty, engaging, the couple never at a loss for repartee. A third party was gracefully included, then a fourth. Little groups were formed, groups that divided themselves, or melted into other groups, or disintegrated again into isolated pairs, or lost themselves in the background of the mass, all without friction, without embarrassment, the whole affair going forward of itself, decorous, tactful, well-bred. At a distance, and not too loud, a stringed orchestra set up a pleasing hum. Waiters, with brass buttons on their full-dress coats, went from group to group, silent, unobtrusive, serving salads and ices. But the focus of the assembly was the little space before Hartrath's painting. It was called a study of the Contra Costa foothills, and was set in a frame of natural redwood, the bark still adhering. It was conspicuously displayed on an easel at the right of the entrance to the main room of the club, and was very large. In the foreground, and to the left, under the shade of a live oak, stood a couple of reddish cows, knee-deep in a patch of yellow poppies, while in the right-hand corner, to balance the composition, was placed a girl in a pink dress and white sunbonnet, in which the shadows were indicated by broad dashes of pale blue paint. The ladies and young girls examined the production with little murmurs of admiration, hazarding remembered phrases, searching for the exact balance between generous praise and critical discrimination, expressing their opinions in the mild technicalities of the art books, and painting classes. They spoke of atmospheric effects, of middle distance, of chiaroscuro, of foreshortening, of the decomposition of light, of the subordination of individuality to fidelity of interpretation. One tall girl with hair almost white in its blondness, having observed that the handling of the masses reminded her strongly of Corot, her companion, who carried a gold lorgnette by a chain around her neck, answered, 
Uh, Millet, perhaps, but not Cora. The verdict had an immediate success. It was passed from group to group. It seemed to imply a delicate distinction that carried conviction at once. It was decided formally that the reddish-brown cows in the picture were reminiscent of Daubigny, and that the handling of the masses was altogether Millet, but that the general effect was not quite Coro. Presley, curious to see the painting that was the subject of so much discussion, had left the group in the round window and stood close to Hartroth craning his head over the shoulders of the crowd, trying to catch a glimpse of the reddish cows, the milkmaid, and the blue-painted foothills. He was suddenly aware of Cedarquist's voice in his ear, and turning about found himself face to face with the manufacturer, his wife, and his two daughters. There was a meeting. Salutations were exchanged. Presley, shaking hands all around, expressed his delight at seeing his old friends once more for he had known the family from his boyhood, Mrs. Cedarquist being his aunt. Mrs. Cedarquist and her two daughters declared that the heir of Los Muertos must certainly have done him a world of good. He was stouter, there could be no doubt about it, a little pale, perhaps. He was fatiguing himself with his writing, no doubt. Ah, he must take care. Health was everything, after all. Had he been writing any more verse? Every month they scanned the magazines looking for his name. Mrs. Cedarquist was a fashionable woman, the president or chairman of a score of clubs. She was forever running after fads, appearing continually in the society wherein she moved with new and astounding protégés, fakirs whom she unearthed no one knew where, discovering them long in advance of her companions. Now it was a Russian countess, with dirty fingernails, who traveled throughout America and borrowed money. Now an aesthete, who possessed a wonderful collection of topaz gems, who submitted decorative schemes for the interior arrangement of houses, and who received in Mrs. Cedarquist's drawing-room, dressed in a white velvet cassock. Now a widow of some Mohammedan of Bengal or Rajputana, who had a blue spot in the middle of her forehead, and who solicited contributions for her sisters in affliction. Now a certain bearded poet, recently back from the Klondike. Now a decayed musician who had been ejected from a young lady's musical conservatory of Europe because of certain surprising pamphlets on free love, and who had come to San Francisco to introduce the community to the music of Brahms. Now a Japanese youth who wore spectacles and a grey flannel shirt, and who at intervals delivered himself of the most astonishing poems vague, unrhymed, unmetrical, lucubrations, incoherent, bizarre. Now a Christian scientist, a lean gray woman whose creed was neither Christian nor scientific. Now a university professor with the bristling beard of an anarchist chief of section, and a roaring guttural voice whose intenseness left him gasping and apoplectic. Now a civilized Cherokee with a mission, now a female elocutionist whose fort was Byron's Songs of Greece, now a high-caste Chinaman, now a miniature painter, now a tenor, a pianist, a mandolin player, a missionary, a drawing-master, a virtuoso, a collector, an Armenian, a botanist with a new flower, a critic with a new theory, a doctor with a new treatment. End of Book Two, Chapter One, Part Three